Welcome to Write a Roadmap, a podcast where we talk about goal setting, productivity, mindset, and playing to your strengths. I'm your host, Holly Lyne. Let's explore where you want your author journey to take you and how you're going to get there. Welcome to a special edition of the Writer Roadmap podcast. You may have noticed already that this is not your usual five minute dose of motivation. Today I have a feature length episode for you with one of my favourite people, Jeff Elkins, aka The Dialogue Doctor. We had a conversation about his recent book, The Dialogue Doctor Will See You Now, and about his struggles with imposter syndrome and what motivates him. It's a fascinating conversation and I bring it to you now in its entirety. So kick back with a beverage or on your commute or wherever you happen to be and listen to this insightful and entertaining interview. Welcome to Writer Roadmap, Jeff Elkins. Would you like to introduce yourself and share a bit about your writing journey so far and what motivates you to write and coach? Oh, great questions. Um, Introduce myself. I am, uh, I podcast and coach writers as the Dialogue Doctor. Uh, I have 12 novels on the market right now, um, but I cannot settle on a genre, even though they all end up being some kind of thriller, because that seems to be where I bend. Um, I uh, started writing, I guess I started writing 11 years ago. I was like 34 um, or so. Uh, I was really struggling professionally and needed an outlet. And so I started tapping into fiction. I guess I should be clear. I started writing fiction 11 years ago. I had always written for work. Um, But I started, uh, and it was um, cathartic. It was very, like, healing to write that way. Um, And, uh, you know, it just kind of grew. Uh, work became more stressful, so I wrote more. Um, and then finally I got fired from a job. And uh, I was like, well, I got fired when my wife was, um, I guess technically I didn't get fired. It was one of those things where it was like, hey, you can resign now or we will fire you in a month. Yeah. And I was like, oh, do I get paid? They're like, yeah, you can resign now and get paid for a month and we fire you in a month and we don't pay you at all. I was like, well, I'll just take the check now. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so technically I resigned. Uh, but it was, um, my wife was nine months pregnant with our fifth kid and we had just moved houses in order to uh, afford, uh, in, or, in order to take the job. Because um, I had only been at work for like six months at that job. Uh, so it was, um, it was a surprise and like just kind of, very economically devastating. Mm. So at that point I was like, you know what? I am not going to be dependent on one income ever again. Uh, That's not, I'm, this is bad and I don't want to feel this again. So Mm. I started writing uh, fiction in a more disciplined way and moved from just writing short stories to writing books uh, with the intent on like, I'm going to try to build some kind of, side career out of this to have a safety net in case this happens again um and that was nine years ago so nine years ago i started publishing novels uh two years two and a half years ago uh after putting a bunch of novels in the world and working 
professionally with understanding how dialogue works. I started the Dialogue Doctor. But so this has multiple motivations for me. One is I find it very cathartic. I still do mm -hmm. to tell stories and to write. When I get really anxious, I like thinking about what the next novel is going to be. Um, it's a way to kind of work out stress. Um, mm -hmm. And then, and I like the puzzle of it. Like I feel like writing, I'm working on a nonfiction um, memoir right now for a publisher Um uh, that has to do with like religious stuff. And uh, it feels like I was just working on it before we got on the call. It's like putting together a puzzle. It's like, how mm -hmm. do all these pieces fit? How does all this work? And then, so that's very uh, healing for me. And then, uh, but then there's also a big financial motivator for me. I've put two kids through, I, I have this fall, I'll have my second kid starting college. Uh, my writing side hustle pays for my first kid's tuition. So, mm -hmm. I'm about to start paying for my second kid's tuition with my writing. And um, that makes me super happy that I can like, I have this thing that I can use to generate uh, resources for their future. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a powerful motivator. It is. Cause if I don't get my crap done and I don't figure out how to sell the next book, I won't have money to pay their tuition. It's really that cut and dry. It's like mm. that simple. Like I sell books and coach writers or my kids' classes get canceled. It's mm. it's a great motivator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're inspiring me a bit because uh, my eldest will be heading off um, probably to um, the local music conservatory uh, in like four years. Oh, nice. So, Yeah. <laughs> yeah don't wait as long as i did i waited too long and by the time i actually figured out how to start making you know some money as a writer i i was it was like the fall before my first one went to college mm -hmm. so it was um definitely desperate stakes right <laughs> like yeah yeah yes. the pressure's on <laughs> the pressure's on the pressure's on right now too like i you know my second one starts in august and i was you know, we just got in all the financial aid information that she got. And so it's like, okay, this is what I have to up my income every month mm. to keep her in school. Thankfully, she picked A, a cheaper school than my older one did. Uh, and B, she's got good scholarships and good financial aid. So it's not like I have to double my income next month or anything. But it mm. is a, there is an increase. And I think every increase, you know, just requires more rigor and discipline and mm -hmm ideas but yeah it'll it definitely will keep you i think that's if it, if i were writing for myself i don't know that i'd ever finish anything mm. i have to have other people as my motivator mm. yeah. yeah if it's for me i'd never do it i just you know <laughs> uh, it's like you know i i love working out i really like working out but it is when life gets busy that's the first thing to go because mm -hmm. it's just for me it's not for like i'm not working out for someone else mm -hmm. um but if if you motivate me with and this is again just the way my brain works if you motivate me with something that's going to help someone else then i'm i'll do that first mm. yeah. yeah all right so that's a really long answer to your introduce yourself <laughs> fine it's great this is great for me i'm yeah i'm getting um, my own coaching here this um <laughs> okay so uh you have a new book out the dialogue doctor 
So can you give us a brief overview of the book and what inspired you to write it? Yeah. So going back to what motivates me, um, that's, we'll just keep going because I know um, you told me the podcast is mostly about motivation. So Mm -hmm. let's just stay there. Um, So the book is a, uh, you know, since starting the dialogue doctor in 20, the fall of 2020, um, I started code doing writing sessions with like coaching sessions with authors where it was like, Hey, give me 2000 words to 4,000 words. And I will, uh, analyze your dialogue and then we can work on like how to make it better. Sometimes that's just a one-off session. And then there's been, you know, probably 20 authors that I've spent like a year with, like going through a whole book with them. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, uh, I'm really honored to had the privilege to work with those writers, but it's since 2020, it's been about 200 different authors that I've worked with. Um, and I, you know, there's been seasons like, you know, six to seven month stretches where I'll do like seven to eight sessions a week, um, with people. So just, uh, I, I've been kind of deep into like, Hey, where do you, where's the struggle with your dialogue? What are you hoping the reader's experience will be? And mm-hmm. how can we take, you know what you're doing and transform it to like empower the reader experience that you want um so i approach coaching not necessarily as an editor but more as a problem solver Mm. okay let's let's collaboratively figure out together how we can change what you're doing in order to make what's in your imagination match what's going to be in the reader's imagination so um after doing that with 200 authors or more than 200 authors it's been a like these are the common tools that we use right like this is the common language we've developed like there's the opening of the book is just vocabulary around like let's talk about what the components of dialogue are like let's describe what it is because it's something we don't do very often so but once you can like label it and understand the components of it you're then armed with tools you can use to transform your writing so we're ta- what I do in the book is I go through dialogue itself kind of as a general thing. Um, I go through dialogue tags. I go through um, character voices. I go through cast building and I go through designing character growth. As I like, Hey, here's the tools that we've learned. Here's the like eight major groups of tools we've learned at through as the dialogue doctor community through working together for 200 plus sessions and podcasting and just having conversations as a community like here's what we've learned about writing dialogue you know hopefully this can empower you to mm-hmm. like help uh help you start uh getting in the reader's imagination what you want in your own imagination so that's what the book is the book is like this is this is the learning of the last two and a half years from the dialogue doctor community mm-hmm. um it's funny i i was originally i didn't think about writing a book at all and then i did this in the fall of 2020 i did a session with a mutual friend of ours sasha black and she was like you need to take what you did in this session and put it in a book and at the time i was like i don't even know what i did i just listened to you and like listened to what you needed and then we figured out how to make that better like Mm -hmm. i don't know 
So it took a while, um, but I wasn't very motivated to write a book because I was like, I don't know, you know, what writing a book, like, is this for my own, like, look, I wrote a book on this. Like, I don't know why I would write a nonfiction book. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think it was like two years in, I started getting letters from people that were like, hey, I really want to learn this, but I, I can't listen to your podcast every week. They're like, I can't, like, I don't have, because my podcasts are long, sometimes they're like an hour yeah. and a half. They're <laughs> like, I don't have an hour and a half to sit and watch a YouTube video or listen to your podcast every week. Um, and I still want to do this. So, like, what do I do? And so that was when I was like, oh, if I can put this in a succinct and functional book, it will help other people. Mm-hmm. And that that was kind of what motivated the actual writing for a book. And once that switch flipped, what took me two years suddenly only took me a month. I literally wrote the thing in a month. I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to help people. Here's how. Here's what we learned that will help people. And I just cranked it out. I gave it to people, and they're like, yeah, this is – everything we've been talking about for two years. I was like, okay, great. Like, let's, let's move forward with it. So it was funny. I did have a weird delay in it in that, like I wrote it and then immediately got, I gave it to five um, editors who are good friends and they gave me amazing feedback on it. And they were all like, this is great. But all, but I was like, who am I to put this out? So then I didn't, I just held it. I just held it for like four, four months. Because I finished it in January, I just didn't do anything with it. It just set in set in my file. And finally, one of them wrote me and was like, "Hey, I um, I actually really need that. Can I have a copy of the manuscript that you wrote?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh, that's right. This was about helping other people." So then I put the book back out. Um, but yeah, so it was um, you know, it's just I think uh, knowing that about myself, I think um. I should be more strategic in self-manipulation. Hmm. So like, cause I am with my fiction. Like I get, I don't know what I'm doing with this. And then I'll be like, Oh, well this has this theme and this focus. And it's this, these parts are going to make people laugh. And that's, that's going to be helpful. So we should like, I should put this out because it's, it's funny and people are going to enjoy it. It's going to make them laugh. Mm-hmm. So I know how to manipulate myself with my fiction. I haven't quite disciplined that level of manipulation with my nonfiction yet. So I'm worried <laughs> on it. I'm working on it. Do you know your Clifton strengths? I do know my Clifton strengths. Do you want to know my Clifton strengths? I, I actually really have do. them over here to the left. Uh, I have a number one strategic, yeah. number two individualization, number three context, number four restorative, and number five achiever. Yeah, it all makes total sense. <laughs> yeah. So I love solving problems. Mm-hmm. I love that's my strategic, right? Yeah. Like I love like I I see ten answers to every question. Uh, mm-hmm. all the time yeah and my strategic is off the chart like it's not even a question as to what's number one it's like that one's off the chart and then i could hear it and everything you said oh, everything that. i say yeah and then my individualization um is great for coaching because i never come to a writing client with the idea that there's one answer mm-hmm. we're gonna find the answer that's best for you there's a there's a, and it really does it's why i coach instead of edit People will ask me like, hey, will you edit my book? I'm like, no, because that's a, you give it to me and I give you back notes. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. I wanted like, the reason I coach is because you give it to me, I give you back notes and then we talk about it for an hour and a half. And that's, it's the talking about it for an hour and a half where the value actually is. It's not in the like things I put on the page. So 
context is a tough one um i've context and i are, are kind of at war and have always been at war uh so for those that don't understand context it is um the belief that using the past to determine the future mm-hmm. and the reason i'm at war with context is because if i have past failure like if a book doesn't sell i'm like well books will never sell mm-hmm. right like it, it has this like impact on and so there is a it is a strength in like solving problems for writers it's great because i'm like okay so i've solved this problem with these eight writers in this way i can i can help you in this way too mm-hmm. but when it comes to publishing it can be tough because it's like sometimes i have to turn it off i have to be like context can just shut up because mm-hmm. i don't i know <laughs> that this didn't work last time but i'm not going we don't need to like dwell on that mm-hmm. um it's been a hard that's been a hard thing about my personality to turn off mm-hmm. uh but yeah, and then um, the restorative, you know, I love fixing things. I love solving problems. And the achiever is a weird one kind of forced in there because I really like to be first. Mm-hmm. So I like to get it done and I like to finish things and I like to finish them well. And I like, um, yeah, so that's that achiever. And so there's a weird balance in me of like, I want to solve this. Like, I want to help you. I want to solve the problems. I want to take the time to solve it. But then the achiever in me is like, but we have to do it right now. Mm. Like we have to get it done. So it's an odd mix. Uh, I'm a weird bird at times. Mm. (laughs) What's going on in my head. Yeah, (laughs) That's the great thing with strengths though, because it's so nuanced and so individualized and, Mm -hmm. and every, the way the strengths interact with each other is always going to be different from person to person and yeah yeah i'm high individualization as well so i love okay that. so you get it <laughs> yeah 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 and strategic's my number two so yeah yeah so you're you. there with me you hear yeah, me yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah you know i find that um strategic people and i don't know if this is true across the board but just in my um personal experience do you do the enneagram have you ever talked mm-hmm. about enneagram numbers yeah. i find that strategic people a lot of times are sixes on the enneagram because oh, you four. have your four mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense too sixes have that inner committee where you're like constantly debating what's happening mm-hmm. what's going on and so um that is i i kind of live in that zone mm-hmm. of my mind is constantly running with i was just texting my wife today she had a problem at work and she texted me the problem and i like immediately i'm in a conversation over text message pretty much with myself of like the different possible solutions to this problem and she finally texted me she's like i just need you to stop right now (laughs) i'm sorry sorry she's like your brain is working 10 times faster than i can text she's like let's do this in person this isn't fair i was like okay we could wait um but yeah that's just kind of how you know I don't know, but when it comes to writing and like motivating work, um, I think it's important to understand yourself in that way, mm-hmm. like figure out who I am and how I, how I function, so that I can uh, I can actually get the work done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it makes such a big difference, doesn't it? Yeah, being able yeah. to manipulate myself into doing <laughs> the things that I need to do is uh, so important. I've I've worked something out with our other mutual friend Shane. Um, yeah. Because he's high competition if you dare him to do something or not do something, it'll happen. <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I use his high competition uh, as a form of self-entertainment. He'll probably <laughs> listen. He knows this. He's, if he doesn't, he's about to find out. So uh, I push his competition when I want to. Um, so for like a while, when I want to be entertained. So for a while, we had a thing going uh, in the Dialogue Doctor community. He and I did called Food Wars, where we'd like post pictures of fun things that we're eating, and then like. <laughs> challenge the other person to beat it and i was having a great time i think he there were times where he was actually like i'm going to win and i was like there's no winning it's just yeah so and sometimes i'll claim victory when i absolutely should not have claimed victory um but yeah anyway that's the that's <laughs> me playing with shane's competition um yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah but anyway yeah no we should only manipulate ourselves and not other people Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. We should never use strength finder to ma- manipulate other people. Never, never, never. No, no, never. Not <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I want to get into a little bit about what's in the book as well. Okay. Um, because I think that's going to be really helpful for my listeners. So, um, you discuss character voice, and I am all in with character voice. Um, it's my favorite thing to nerd out about with craft. Um, so how would you define this term and how can authors create a diverse and dynamic cast of voices for their readers? Oh, that's great. So, um, great question. So, and I'll just move off of our strengths finder slash personality conversation to talk about forming character voice. So I think a lot of times as authors, we get an idea of our character's personality and, um, when we'll use strengths, we'll use the Enneagram, we'll use these personality types to like, oh, this is my character. And then we we write down that personality somewhere, we get that personality in our imagination, and then we just hope that it translates to the page. Mm-hmm. Because we have it in our imagination, we hope that, okay, because I'm imagining it, surely it's going to appear on the page and the reader will imagine it as well. Unfortunately, like, the strengths finder numbers, you can't just list on the page. Like, that's, I mean, you can, <laughs> but I don't know that that's going to help your reader imagine the character anymore. <laughs> and that's not how we understand people in real life. Like mm-hmm. when you walk into a party of people and there's like, you know, you start talking to a stranger for the first time. It doesn't have, even have to be a party. If you show up on like a, uh, let's say you show up on a, uh, an internet date, you've met somebody on an app and you're showing up to a date with them for the first time you're meeting them. You sit down across from them. Your brain is doing all kinds of things as you seek to understand them right? Your brain is watching their body language. Your brain is uh, paying attention to the topics that they select to choose about, right? Like to talk about. Your brain is listening to the words and you're making judgments about those words that they're using. Your brain is uh, listening to how they talk, like the pacing of their sentences. In essence, your brain is like gauging the sentence structure and how they're, how they put those sentences together. And then if it's more than just you and that person, like if, you know, let's say the waitress comes over to take an order, your brain is now watching how they treat that other person and how they interact with that other person in the group. Right. Like, so, Mm -hmm. and we're not doing this consciously. We're just, it's just the way we're wired. We're, um, communal creatures. We live in community settings and, you know, through, you know, all of our history, we've had to learn how to like judge the other communal creatures around us to relate ourselves to them, like to build. So your reader has all of that functionality in their imagination when they come to your book. Mm -hmm. 
And so when you just take a personality and then start writing and go, man, I hope this translates, what you're doing is being non-strategic or non-specific about all of those unconscious things happening. Mm -hmm. And you're putting, like some people can do it. They're just masters of character voice and they're really great at in tuning to the page all of these things that they need that the reader's brain needs to trigger to understand the character some of us are not great at it and we we have to work at it more so for those of us that have to work at it more character voice are how does that personality sound on the page that's what character voice is it's those all of those those five unconscious things i listed topics vocabulary body language the construction of a character's utterance and the uh, rate that a character speaks uh, in a group of characters. So ideally we can take that personality and say like, okay, I know that the reader is looking for these five things. Let me be strategic about these five things and list them out Mm -hmm. Um, and make sure that this voice aligns with those five things. So, you know, you want your shy character feeling shy on the page. So give them shy body language and give them short sentences and give them a few words and make sure their topics are always about other people because they don't want to talk about themselves because they're shy. They don't want attention on themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like you want your commanding character always feel commanding. So give them commanding body language, have them point, have them put, have, give them good posture, even when they're leaning on something, right? Like have them uh, use uh, a lot of periods, not a lot of question marks, unless they're searching for an answer to a question that's going to lead them to a decision. Have them take the lead in conversations and always give them the last word, right? Like mm-hmm. these are things that commanding people do. The great thing is, is that, you know, as you think about these personality types, you have them in your imagination. You just have to take the next step and be like, mm-hmm. so what does that personality sound like? And that's how we go about building a character voice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of what I what I coach everybody through in the book is this like, hey, here's here are the components of the character voice and here's how we go about building them. I think in the book I give like seven or eight examples of different character voices. Um and then it becomes fun because you can like mix and match them. So like, well, my shy character is also very intellectual. So how does an intellectual person how is an intellectually intellectual but shy person sound not but an intellectual and shy person as if like those are contrasting an intellectual and shy person sound versus a um you know shy person with limited education Mm. right like how do those two voices differ and you can start so when we talk about building a dynamic cast we start contrasting and comparing our characters personalities and their voices um Mm. And you can kind of do this in one of two stages. Like you can do this in your work before you start writing. So if you're motivated by having a plan and and like building a big character Bible before you start writing, then do this before and mm-hmm. get your charts out. If that's not what motivates you, if what motivates you is actually just writing the scene, go write the scene. And then after the scene, be like, how did I want this character to feel? Mm-hmm. Like, what is this, what is the reader's experience? How would the reader, if the reader is going to define this character like two adjectives, what would those two adjectives be? And then take a step back and be like, okay, how should the voice have sounded? And mm-hmm. now make your chart and then go back and edit. 
right? Like, so we can do it in one of two places. It doesn't matter where you do it, but if you want clear and distinct character voices, uh, you know, at some point you do have to think about how does that personality sound on the page? Yeah. 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 Okay. So you, um, you talk in the book about, um, replacing the traditional roles like hero and villain side character with terms like vehicle engine anchor and hazard yeah yeah can you talk to me about that it's gonna get me in trouble you're asking about the thing that's gonna get me in trouble um i don't i don't for just to be clear i think hero side character and villain are fine words especially when we're talking about their role in the plot Mm -hmm. so protagonist and antagonist and side character are great when you're talking about like here's the major conflict going on in the book and what side of the conflict do these characters stand on mm-hmm. right when we start talking about how those characters relate to each other and what it's like to form a character growth arc protagonist and antagonist stop being helpful mm-hmm. because the challenge of the book so if we think about the plot versus like character growth the the plot is what has to happen in the book, right? That's the conflict that you're trying to solve. Whether you're writing a romance and the conflict is like these two characters need to come together or you're writing a heist and the conflict is like they need to rob the bank or you're writing a thriller and it's like this person needs to escape the people chasing them. What That's your plot. Mm-hmm. Your character growth arc is the way your character needs to mature or evolve in order to accomplish that challenge. Right. So, you know, you're going back to our, the two types we used. Your shy character needs to find their own voice in order to be in a productive relationship, in order to actually work with a team to rob the bank, in order to escape the people chasing her. Or your commanding character needs to learn to work with other people or needs to learn to trust. That would be a better one. Your commander character needs to learn to trust the, um, uh, advice of other people uh, in order to be in a successful relationship, in order to rub the bank, in order to, you know, escape the people chasing her, right? Like whatever that is. So when we talk about character growth, it's like, okay, well, this is the antagonist. This is the police officer uh, trying to stop the bank robbery. But how does that police officer impact the character growth of your lead character? Well, the word antagonist isn't necessarily helpful because the police officer might be the thing that drives your character to change. So <laughs> they're an antagonist to the plot, but they're a protagonist to character growth, mm. right? So part of the reason is a commu- uh, with the community, I came up with these words was because like, okay, this is a problem, right? Like we're trying to figure out how these characters relate to one another and how they impact each other's character growth. And these words, hero, villain, and side character aren't helpful anymore Mm. because they're just not doing, they're not giving us the tools we need to get this job done. So we started using um, vehicle engine anchored and hazard to describe like how characters relate to each other. So the vehicle character is the character, the reader is experiencing the emotional journey through. Mm-hmm. typically that's your point of view character if you have more than one point of view you have more than one vehicle right but yeah. this is the character who you are behind whose eyes the reader is experiencing the book behind if you have like a generalized point of view that it's likely the character that's the most sympathetic or the one that's like this is the character that needs to change 
So the character going through the change is your vehicle character. The anchor characters are the characters that encourage that character to be the worst version of themselves. They pull that vehicle down. Right. Yeah. Um, the engine characters are the characters that uh, encourage that character to be the best version of themselves. Mm -hmm. They inspire that character to move forward. And then hazard characters are these characters we bring into the story. They're these huge voices that force the character to change. And part of this is about saying like, hey, every scene, as much as every scene needs to have some kind of conflict related to the, to the overall conflict of the story, every scene also needs to have some sort of challenge to the character's growth. Either mm -hmm. the character is going to succeed, grow, or consider growth in this scene. So a lot of times what happens is we're writing these, like, happens a lot with info dumps. Like, we're writing a scene where we just have to get across a lot of information, and it works for the plot because you're going to learn stuff about the plot. But it's like, man, we just got a side character here, and this is boring as hell. Or you'll have a scene where, like, the character just needs to, like, take a moment and reflect on, like, what's going on next. So you've got a scene of, like, them in an Uber, and they're just, like writing thinking about what happened and as you read it you're like man this is boring as hell like there's nothing happening here so part of uh what a hazard character does is you're like okay take that uber driver and make them a huge voice make them a single personality trait and make that personality trait gigantic mm -hmm. and now your character has to swerve around that hazard they have to mm -hmm. deal with this big voice in the room and now we've got something happening Right. Like, so it's that kind of like um, using, instead of saying this character is a side character, which is kind of a throwaway, saying like, okay, this character has purpose, but I don't need a growth arc for this character. Mm. I just need a big, they just have to be big. <laughs> and I can, they're great. Hazard characters are great to bring back like multiple times where you're like, okay, I'm going to have a repeated scene where my character gets in an uber three different times and they always have the same uber driver we see that a lot in movies mm -hmm. like there's a, in a lot in movies you know i think of like um how i met your mother i was thinking of that yeah. too. <laughs> there's the limo driver they keep bringing back he's a big huge voice right like he's kind of a one-note character he's always yeah. the same he's this giant voice um in friends there's the bar there's the barista that's mm -hmm. his name i can't remember Gunther. there's like Gunther, Gunther, <laughs> who's always kind of grumpy and stodgy, right? Like he's that kind of, but he's, yep. he is the grumpiest and stodgiest. So like <laughs> you bring that character in when you need to show that the characters are changing because how they react to that character demonstrates to the reader that the character is shifting over time. Mm. That makes sense. So, yeah, but yeah, but that's what those terms are. And that's again, like we use them to start solving problems. Mm -hmm. Um, around character growth around like how do we talk about character growth how do we analyze character growth in our story like what should these cast members be doing for each other mm. it gets more the more vehicles you have the more complex it gets like the dialogue doctor community did a um uh for uh those that like subscribe to the community we did a uh session where we watched guardians of the galaxy movies and then we put on a big chart the the five main community members in that group and mm -hmm. we just and we try to decide who's an anchor or who's an engine for who mm -hmm. and because once you figure that out you can start putting people in you can start designing what characters and what scenes to really drive your plot 
Mm. So when you need everything to fall apart, put the anchors together. Because mm-hmm. they're so like in Guardians of the Galaxy, when they need everything to fall apart, you'll see that Star Lord and Rocket are the main voices mm-hmm. because they're anchors to each other. They drive each other down. Yeah. So you put them together, and things are going to explode. They're going <laughs> to yell. They're going to scream. They're going to fuss at each other. They're. But if you want things to be successful and you want things to work, then you get Star Lord with Gamora or Star Lord with uh, Mantis because they're. Uh, that's his engines mm-hmm. or you put rocket with Groot because Groot yeah. is rocket's engine. So if you want rocket to like be successful and be the best version of himself, put him with Groot because that's his engine. Groot is actually, it's funny. Groot is actually everyone's engine on the team and Drax is everyone's anchor. <laughs> Drax turns everyone into the worst version of themselves. Groot turns everyone into the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. So you have these two characters that are like serving this like, role for the rest of that crew and then each movie kind of focuses on two of the other characters growth mm-hmm. so then you get yeah so it's a it's an interesting i think any james gunn movie any james gunn screenplay that he's written i've read as many as i can get my hands on because he doesn't share a lot of them but you can see that like, oh, he builds these casts with this kind of character growth arc in mind. Mm. With like, this guy is the one that drags everybody down. This guy is the one that makes everybody the best version of themselves. And he knows when to bring Groot into a scene and when to bring Drax into a scene. When you need things to fall apart, put Drax in there. (laughs) When you need everybody to feel great, bring in Groot. And it's like that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I love it. I'm so anyway, going to be looking in everything now for these character types. Yeah, it's um, you find it a lot. I find it a lot in romance, mm. um, especially romance that has the like, uh, which guy do I choose trope? Yeah, one of those guys is an anchor. One of those guys is an engine. Yeah. Every in every good romance, one of those guys is an anchor, and I think the clearest one is Bridget Jones' Diary. Yes. Um, da- you know, Daniel in the movie played by Hugh Grant is 100% an anchor. He makes her into the worst version of herself and even like comments on how she looks and like tells her not to have any ambition. Like he is vocally her anchor at all times. Yeah. And then, um, the, uh, Colin Firth, um, who is Darcy, because mm-hmm. uh, we could just keep rewriting Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Colin Firth, who is Darcy, is her engine, and he's yeah. the best version. He makes, even though often they're fighting, when she's with him, she speaks her mind. She has strong opinions. She is confident in who she is. She's not concerned about how she looks. She is just mm-hmm. present in the moment, which is at the beginning of the book slash movie is what she sets out. She says, this is who I want to be. Mm-hmm. Whenever she's with the Colin Firth character, he pushes her to be that person. Mm-hmm. Whenever she's, And that's why at the end of the movie, you're like, yeah, this is the guy we want you with. Even <laughs> though Hugh Grant is, you know, I would say, hotter. Um, and you know, seems more fun. Mm. You want her with Colin Firth because that's where she's going to be the best version of herself at all times. So, yeah, yeah I think it's, um, I think that's a, uh, I think it's a good tool to understand. And it is for me, it is a little like 
you know understanding the save the cat layout of a plot for a movie once you start looking for like the character growth arc and the engines and anchors you're like oh i see it it's right there yeah you can't unsee it um yeah yeah and it isn't always static like i'm talking about it in this like very simple way but a lot of times like especially if you have multiple growth arcs as one character grows, they'll become an engine. For, they'll be an anchor at the beginning and an engine at the end. If you have yeah. multiple growth arcs, it's, it's more complicated. So the key, again, isn't to be like, this is how it works. The key is to be like, hey, this is a tool you can use to help analyze what you're writing in a little bit different way. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so. We're like question three of 12. <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> I'll stay on as long as you want. All right. Can you explain why you believe that writing a dialogue-centric scene first can set an author up for success? Oh, good question. Well, one, I think um, the dream of every author is to get their book into a screenplay. Uh, and I think, you know, what I've heard from screenplay writers is that they want that to be easy. There's a gazillion books out there. So if they have to choose between the really good romance book that is easy to put into a screenplay and the really good romance book that is hard to put in a screenplay, they're going to go the easy one. Yeah. So first off, like let's knowing that the money right now, the money and popular attention is in visual media. That's not what we write, but that's where we want our writing to potentially go. Like that's all of our dreams. Let's just go ahead and make that as easy as possible. Mm. right and the screenplay of your novel is just the dialogue that's what it is they're going to pull out everything but the dialogue so let's just go ahead and help them see that that's mm. the first thing the second thing is um dialogue is characters interacting it's what it is and that's the reader is coming to experience your characters interacting with each other. That's what they're showing up to the story for. Mm -hmm. um, so you're not just making it easy for like potential moving things forward by writing a dialogue centric slash kind of like screenplay ready novel. You're also empowering, you're giving the reader what they want, right? Like, and we know this, like, you know, this, everybody listening knows this. If you're reading a book, and I give you five pages that are paragraphs of a description of a castle. You might get through four, and then you're going to start turning the pages to figure out when the action starts. Yeah. And by the phrase, when the action starts, I mean, when do the characters start interacting? Yeah. Right? Like, that's what we want. And so you just need to look to your own reading experience to understand this, right? Like, mm -hmm. even sci-fi readers who love spaceships. Right, like that's not every not every sci-fi reader loves spaceships, but there is a specific type of sci-fi reader who loves spaceships. Even sci-fi readers who love spaceships will not tolerate you just writing paragraphs of spaceships. They mm -hmm. won't do it. They'll they will start looking for okay, when and they'll say things like, When does the action start? When does the story start? When did when are we gonna get into it? These phrases all mean please dialogue, please. That's yeah. what they mean. So, <laughs> you know, you got to get to those characters interacting. And that's what we, because uh, that's what readers want and look for. Mm. Um, yeah. So, at the, uh, you know, as that's part of my mission as the dialogue doctor is like, hey, let me help you 
take this story you've imagined and make it something a reader is going to be excited about. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So you put this book away for four months before deciding, okay, I have to publish this now. So what was going on? What was the struggle that you had to overcome there? Um, that's a good question. I think it is. I don't have a degree in this, right? Like, I'm. I don't. In fact, I was a straight. I used to. I used. I tease my parents. I would come home with like my report card all the way back in grade school, and uh, I can remember when I was in like junior high. I came home and I had been told that by one of my friends that he was getting paid for grades. And he was like, for every A, I get $5. For every B, I get $3. And for every C, I get a dollar. <laughs> and I remember coming home to my dad and be like, hey, this is what Ryan's parents are giving him. I would like that deal too, please. And without looking up from the medical journal he was reading, because he would sit at the kitchen table and read medical journals, without looking up from the medical journal he was reading, he said, A is the expectation. So that just kind of sets you up for like, hey, this is this was my level of schooling. A was the expectation. And there really wasn't much tolerated underneath it, A. Um, if I got a B, it was like, why? Why did you get a B? And I'd be like, a B is a good grade. They're like, no, A is the expectation. So oh, the only, I say all that to say, the only class I ever got lower than a B in was uh, English, uh, freshman English in college, uh, mm-hmm. which was writing 101 um i i hated writing i was really bad at it Uh, i'm dyslexic it's really hard for me so i think um because that's kind of where i my history with writing because coming i didn't come to writing until i was in my 30s um i do have this natural like i'm not the one that should be talking about this like somebody with phd behind their name should be doing this like not me uh so there is a weird I think, and that's what kept me from writing the book for four months because I put this book out and the ideas in the book, um, I'm not saying this arrogantly, I I have looked, the ideas in the book, this is the only place you're going to find them. They're not, Mm -hmm. people don't talk about dialogue like this. We don't analyze dialogue about like this. We get stuck on like, yeah, characters need to talk to each other and here's how you use dialogue tags. And that's kind of where we stop with it. We don't get into like, how do you determine character growth? How do you build character voices? How do you develop cast? So, you know, I think having this new stuff come out of the dialogue doctor community and then putting it on the page and then looking at it, hearing editors be like, nobody else is talking about this this is going to be something that really helps writers. All I heard was nobody else is talking about this. Mm-hmm. And that for me was like, well, maybe I shouldn't be talking about it. So, you know, just that lack of confidence in my own work, I think is um, it's a perpetual struggle. It's something I've always struggled with. Mm-hmm. And so there is, and that is, you know, kind of the definition of imposter syndrome is like, I'm not the somebody else more qualified than me should be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just bullcrap. It's just it, it's just bullcrap because you know I can I can tell my story in a completely different way. I did when I came on the podcast, which is like, hey, I've done something that other writing coaches haven't done. I've in two years I did two hundred sessions with people. 
right? Like, mm -hmm. and this comes out of that experience. That should be enough for me to be like, I learned some crap in, because, you know, 200 sessions, it's, uh, it's like an hour and a half to edit 2000 words for me. And then it's an hour and a half to discuss those. And those are the small sessions. So each of those 200 sessions is a minimum of, of three hours, which means 600 hours of just talking about dialogue with writers. And mm -hmm. here's, here's what I've learned. That should be enough. It, you know, not to mention that like for my professional career for the last eight years, I I've been a professional mimic training people, how to have difficult conversations, like intensely trying to understand why and how they say the, th the things they do, what is successful about that and what is unsuccessful about that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, working with them to train, to build trainings for their students that teach their students how to talk. Right. Like, so that's like, there's a way to tell my story that's like, no, I'm the only person that could write this book. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's the fear, that's the kind of devil of imposter syndrome. Um, or as, you know, the war of art said, the devil of resistance mm -hmm. is that you only see the negative. Yeah. And you're like, this is, you know, and I think we're we're prone to do that because to see the positive is to risk. And I don't, like, it's scary risking is scary to like put your imposter syndrome is comfortable and imposter syndrome is um safe mm. because you're making the assumption that everyone is going to see that you're wrong mm. and so there's a deep safety in that that's like i don't have to risk putting this into the world because uh everybody knows that i'm not the person to do it mm -hmm. whereas like actually taking the risk is very hard because yeah. it's like what you know and i have had people push back on me and be like you know i don't i don't like this i don't like how you're describing character voices i've never heard anybody talk about vehicles engines anchors and hazards before that's not or like you know can you prove this to me in master works I'm like, well, I, I can, like, yes, I like we do. That's what I do on the podcast. Like we do it all the time. Um, but there is that, like that pushback is scary and hard. And do you know, I have had people, like I applied about a year and a half into dialogue doctor. Um, I had just gotten paid by a large um, writing association in Canada to do a four and a half hour course for them over zoom for mm -hmm. 200 of them over zoom. Right. They're like, we want you to be the whole day of our thing. That was a great, it was awesome. We had a fantastic time and like it was, it was so much energy, so much fun. It was a great session. And I ended it. And my immediate thought was like, why am I doing this for people in Canada and not the writers association that literally meets at the, the 10 people that literally meet at the library from walking distance in my house? <laughs> why am I not doing it for them? And I was like, I should give back to my local community. I will do it for them for free. So I, email them. I'm like, Hey, here's who I am. Here's the podcast. I, you know, I coach writers. This is what I do. Um, I've, I've done it in all these places. I've guessed it on all these podcasts. I've done all these things where I listed off all my accolades that like support that, like I'm the person that should do this. And they wrote me back and they said, you're not qualified. <laughs> and it's like, you know, part of me hears that and it's like, Oh, like the risk taking 
side that actually would help people hears that and it's like, okay, I don't meet whatever weird measure you have. And when you're ready, I'll still be here. Right. Like that's part of like there's a, the positive side of me would say that, but the negative side of me is like, they're right. I'm not qualified. Mm-hmm. And so it's that like, but again, that's, that's safe. Cause that side is like, stop doing what you're doing. Stop taking risks. Stop trying to, mm-hmm. and just sit and be it, you know? So anyway, all that to say, I think, um, giving into the anchor side of myself and being like, believing the voice in my head that's like you shouldn't be doing this you're not qualified you're not any good at this you're not qualified to do this people are just humoring you um that's the like i think that's a powerful thing that we all have to battle when we put things into the world whether it's nonfiction or fiction you have to battle it um mm-hmm. but yeah yeah that's what and- we're doing it's so common as well like i don't know a writer who doesn't get imposter syndrome we all get it and in a way that sort of that makes it worse and that i'm not saying we shouldn't talk about it because we should but the more we talk about how common it is the more i guess people can sort of just go well that's the way it is then and not try to overcome it yeah it's that safety isn't it like it is. It's that safety. And I think for me, understanding to my, because we talk about it a lot, like it's a disease, mm. like it's something we've caught and not that it is something we're doing because we have benefit from it. Mm. So I think coming to understand what the benefit of imposter syndrome is allows me now, again, I'm an off the chart strategic. So this helps me. This may not help other people. But for me, coming to understand like, okay, this is actually the trade that I'm making. By accepting imposter syndrome, I am protecting myself from the risk of rejection. Mm. And once I understand that, now I have a choice to make, right? Like what is greater, risking the rejection or protecting myself from the risk of rejection? Right. And it helps me because I think the problem is imposter syndrome is such an emotionally powerful feeling. It helps me to remove the emotion from it mm-hmm. and to be like, what is this? What, is, what are the choices I'm making? Mm-hmm. What am I doing here? And it's okay. It's actually okay to be like, I don't want to risk this. That is a logical and um sometimes valid choice yeah but just know that's the choice you're making and i think a lot of times we don't stop to figure out that that's the choice we're making mm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. okay so when it comes to your fiction what one significant roadblock have you faced there and how have you overcome it I still can't figure out how to sell fiction well. Mm. I can't. I don't. Um, I make a small amount of money on fiction, but nowhere near what I make on coaching writers. Um, and I think a big part of that is that um, I don't. Uh, the I feel like the money where the money is 
in the past probably five years, and I believe this is changing with AI, but where the money was in the past five years was in specifically in selling books was in finding a genre and sticking to it. Mm. And I'm not motivated by that mm. because there's not a problem there to solve. Mm. So it's very difficult for me to write to genre tropes because I can't quite formulate it as in like, there's a problem here that no one else is solving. Mm. Um, which I know is how I motivate myself. I need to help people with a problem that no one else is solving. And I can't, you know, when I'm like, well, I, I understand like, here's the the beats to a romance, um, you know, to a to X type of romance. I should write that because people like that and they read it. And I just, it doesn't inspire me. Like I can't, that's not exciting. Um, And so it's very hard for me to finish. Like I started a detective series that was intended to be written very succinctly to the detective beats and like i spent a lot of time researching and reading and like figuring out what those did i got like halfway through the book i'm like wait i'm strained from the beats and you go back what am i doing <laughs> and i'm like oh well i'm strained from the beats because i i like the problem i've created for this character and i want to pursue that problem for this character but that's not what's going to sell that book so <laughs> there's a like so that's part of my issue is that like i'm i'm bad at selling fiction that's the barrier I have is that like there is it is very possible to make a strong living off of fiction um there are it is there are ways like people are great at it and like yeah. the, I stand in awe of like the 20 books to 50k crew because mm -hmm. I'm like you have skill and um power that I don't have I can't I'm also a two book a year kind of guy like I I like to ponder and sit so mm. that's been the biggest barrier to my fiction and the barrier actually really impacts my motivation in writing because i'm supposed to be doing this like what motivates me writing fiction is getting money in order to fund my kids lives so when it doesn't pay off well i'm like well i should stop doing this and go work at 7-eleven um mm. so it's like <laughs> I just get a second job. I just go drive Uber. But so like, it's, um, you know, I think thankfully it's paid enough. Like I've been able to make enough money so that it keeps me motivated to keep going. Mm -hmm. um, but I do abandon projects a lot. Like I have actually never finished a series. Um, right. Cause by the time I get to book three, they're not selling. Mm -hmm. I'm like, there's no point in writing book four. They're not selling. So I just thought like, I, my favorite series I ever wrote was my first one. Uh, it was supposed to be an urban fantasy. I did zero research into what an urban fantasy was. I was like, oh, I know, I understand urban fantasy. It's fantasy that takes place in modern day cities. So I'm going to write about two homeless superheroes who people think might be insane because they fight invisible monsters. But shocker, the invisible monsters are real. So I was like, this is urban fantasy. <laughs> And uh, I wrote that book and I put it into the world. And then I looked at the other books that were, and I was like, well, how do I sell this? And I, you know, listened to all the advice. They're like, well, go look at the, tr at the other books in that genre that are selling. And I'm like, oh, these are all, you know, the protagonists are 20 to 30 year old women who have psychic abilities that are using those to solve crimes. They are not, there are not chapters in those books about the heroes digging through dumpsters to find their lunch. That's not, <laughs> happening and i was like well what genre does this fit in and it's like well nobody really wants to read about homeless superheroes who talk on cell phones 
two mysterious voices. <laughs> um, and, you know, people listening and think those are weird. Nobody wants to read that. So it's like, oh, okay. So I wrote book one and then I wrote book two because, like, well, maybe I can build my own genre for it. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. So I wrote book two and I loved book two. I was like, man, book two is great. And it sold a little bit less than book one. And then I wrote book three and book three sold a little bit less than book one and book two. And then I wrote book four. And I think literally like four people have read book four, four or five. <laughs> and, but like the 20 people that have read books one, two, and three are like, hey, when is book five coming out? We really want it in this series. And I'm like, no, I don't have six months of my life to devote to writing something for 20 people. Like this, this doesn't, yeah. it's not going to work. So the answer is never, it's never coming out. When Netflix picks up book one and book two, then we can have book five. So that, <laughs> that's the like, but yeah, so it's that, I think that's been a big barrier is that like, I am bad what the market wants. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I am stubborn enough and stupid enough to not just do what the market tells me to do. Um, <laughs> and I don't say that with pride. I say that with full acknowledgement of like, yeah, this is a problem I have. Uh, the other problem I think too, like the other big barrier that has been, and I'm going to say this one because I think a lot of authors face this, but we don't talk about it enough. When I started writing, I had, um, when I started publishing, Part of the reason I started publishing fiction as a way to make money is because I could do it all for free. Mm-hmm. I could get all of this done by bartering and trading because I had just lost my job. I had worked, I had spent 15 years working in nonprofits where they paid me below the poverty line. I had four children. Um, we had been like begging and, and bartering just to get our bills paid. Like mm-hmm. we had no money. So I was like, how do you start a small business with no money? I was like, well, I can publish for free, but mm-hmm. you can't advertise for free. And mm-hmm. I would say I was at book nine before I actually had any kind of money to give to advertising. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have money to advertise, you just have to accept that this is a slow build career. Mm-hmm. And I finally got there. Like I was, you know, at first, I was ang- I had a year where I was angry about it, where it's like, I've cranked out three books this year. I feel these are good books. And yes, they have nothing to do with genre or market, but I do feel like if people read them, they will enjoy them. And people do read them, and they do enjoy them. Like, they're high- they were highly rated on Amazon. They all had – I didn't have anything under a four-star rating, and one of them had, like, 150 ratings. So, like, it wasn't that, like, nobody was reading them. I was giving them away for free, and, like, I was building – but. I had to a place where it was like, well, what do I do next? And so I start listening to advice and it's like, well, you got to run Amazon ads. You got to run Facebook ads. You got to, and people would be like, it's okay. You're going to make back the money you spend. I was like, but I don't have the money to spend. Mm-hmm. So I came to this hard truth where, and I remember I was listening to Joanna Penn and I can't remember exactly what podcast episode it was or what she said, but she started talking about the long game. Mm-hmm. And she was like, if you don't want to write to market, if you don't want to do these things, then just understand that you're playing the long game. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my fiction is the long game. And, you know, that has been true. That has paid off. Yeah. Those back books do sell. They don't sell a ton, but people read, like right now, the, the project I'm working on is called Nerds, and I write it with J.P. Reinflash, and it's my most financially successful 
series. It's my, it's the third series I've written. And there's several standalone novels in that line as well. And it's my first one that I can be like, yeah, I make, I make more money. I make money that actually pays my time off of this. Mm-hmm. And people do go back to my old books and they're like, Oh, I like nerds. Let me see that one. And it's, um, so it is starting to pay off now, almost 10 years into this venture. Um, but I think early on that was a big barrier and it is frustrating because it, it, I feel like as authors, we don't say, I actually heard Lindsay Broker talk about this recently and she was very open and clear about it, which I loved and have so much respect for her, but, um, she's amazing, but it, (laughs) it is something we don't often say that like, Hey, you're starting a small business when you're publishing and small businesses need, to, to scale, small businesses need investment. Mm-hmm. That's what venture capitalism is. There isn't a small business that starts big without some kind of financial backing, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, there's that fun statistic that floats around America all the time. It's like Amazon, like Jeff Bezos, when he started Amazon, didn't have to pay taxes or produce any income for like five years. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, if I gave you unlimited resources and so you don't have to show any income for five years, could you create something big? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll figure it out. Like, <laughs> but that's like, that's not where most of us are. Most of us come into this with like, okay, we've got, we're scrapping. We love to write. We love what this does. We like putting this in the world. We'd, we'd like to make money off of this. We'd like for this to be our career. Do we have a big pot of money to put toward it? Most of us do not. Mm-hmm. So we have to understand that like, this is going to be a scrap and a fight and it doesn't mean don't do it. It doesn't mean like, but it does mean don't get discouraged when you hear about authors running tons of ads and making lots of money. Like, yeah, that's how the market works. Like it's not, don't be mad at it. Mm. Just understand that. Like if you don't have that, this is a harder road for you to climb Mm. and that's okay. It doesn't mean you can't climb it. It just means it's going to take you a longer time. So That's kind of where I had to come with my fiction was to be like, okay, I'm bad at writing to the market. I'm not motivated by it. It's, and this is a failure of mine, like a personal failure of mine. And I'm, I don't have the capital. I didn't have the capital to actually run ads and to like get my book on. Like, I remember I used to apply for a book pub for my books. I've never got a book pub. (laughs) Because again, write to the market thing. But like, hey, your readers are looking for homeless superheroes. I promise. Uh, I never, I never got a book club, but I used to apply for them all the time, but I'd apply for them knowing I do not have $500 to pay for this. Mm. If they give it to me, I'm going to have to choose between paying for this book club and like paying an electric bill. Like mm. that's, that's kind of the level of poverty I was at. So it's like, I would have to choose between like paying for this book club or like maybe delaying a mortgage payment. Like, so it's that kind of like, when you when you're scrapping you know like i think a lot of us in the author community do a lot of these options just aren't open to you so it's one of those like hey you know but my encouragement is like keep going Mm -hmm. because you can build a following it just takes a lot longer yeah so keep going Right. Like, and I'll also say that, like, I've known a lot of authors that come in, drop a bunch of, uh, write a series, drop a bunch of money on advertising, make all of that money back, and then burn out and they're not mm-hmm. around anymore. Yeah. And so part of me is like, if you can stay for the long haul, 
you're probably going to be better in the future. Yeah. Like I think it's probably healthier in the future, but I yeah. I had another author friend today, um, I, like recount that she's just published her 20th book. She's been doing this 10 years. She's never made any money. And suddenly this book has taken off. Yeah. And now her backlist is selling and, you know, she's yeah. finally getting everything that she's dreamed of and it has taken 10 years and yeah. it's, it's a long game. Yeah. And it does that mean like, Hey, if you write for 10 years and write 20 books, things will take off. No, it does not. No, that is not a promise. That is not what is being said. No. But what is being said is that like persistence pays and mm. if you can accelerate success with capital. Mm-hmm. If you have money to burn, you can make more mistakes and you can um, accelerate your advancement. Mm-hmm. If you don't have money to burn, mistakes are going to hurt you. They're going to take time and you don't have the like nitro to stick in your tank to make this take off. Yeah. So that doesn't mean don't do it. That just means understand what you're getting into Yeah. and motivate yourself differently, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if making if your goal is to make you know ten thousand dollars in your first year, you better be showing up with some capital to make that happen, mm-hmm. right? Like if your goal is so, if you don't have that capital, find a different goal. Like, <laughs> like you know, does that make sense? Am I yeah. making any sense? Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah. I want to circle back around because you said a couple of times there that your inability to write to market is a failing. It is not. We are not all built the same way. We don't all have to write to market and we can have success without writing to market. That like a beautiful Enneagram four. Very, <laughs> very nice. Yeah, I don't I see it as a failing from the perspective of how to make money in this industry um is not magic. Hmm. And so if my goal is to make money, there is a way to do it, and I'm not good at it. Do I see it as a failure as a person? No, I love what I write. I love what I write. And it, it motivates me and it's great um, doing it. You know, I say I love what I write. There's a weird thing there. I love what I try to write. I should say that. I love what I try to write. I've actually never been happy with a book that I've finished. <laughs> I I just abandoned them. I don't know. Are you happy with books when you're done with them? Yeah. I never am. <laughs> I never like them. I just, I published a book last year. Speaking of like not having the resources to overcome failures, I published a book last year. I think it's my best book by far. I failed the launch. I totally botched the launch of that book. I I bet on some things. I bet that like certain that a certain group of readers who don't usually buy fiction would be very into this book. They were not. Um, So I kind of went all in with that group, and that gamble failed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So. You know, that being said, I was like, so I'm thinking about relaunching the book and figuring out like how to do that. I was like, well, let me, let me write the screenplay for it because I think it actually is going to be a better screenplay than it is a novel. Mm -hmm. So I start writing the screenplay and I write chapter one and I'm like, this chapter is garbage. This is, there's no, there's, this is a, I can't put this into a screenplay. This is a bad start to a movie. So I, like okay i'll go to the i'll start with the next chapter i go to chapter two i'm like this is also a very slow and bad start to a movie i did that all the way to chapter six and when i got to chapter six i was like oh crap this is where the story starts 
and like uh -huh. one through one through six i do not need so i'm like i'm thinking about writing rewriting the book now before i relaunch it and just like deleting the first six chapters because i'm like <laughs> you don't need them i don't know what i was like i really had a good time writing them i don't know like and i can remember when i gave it to beta readers all of my beta readers said to me it's got a slow start they're like i really like it i can tell that something is happening but it's got a slow start and I was okay. I was like, hey, you know, it's a lit fic novel. They have slow starts. Like, that's how I justified it. <laughs> but now that I look at it a year later with new eyes as a screenplay, I'm like, oh, no, this is a crappy start. It's going to delete all of this. But all that to say, like, I'm actually never happy with any of my work. Just want to caveat that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I do like what I write. Like, it's not that I don't enjoy it. It's just like, you know, from the perspective of selling, I'm not good at that. Um, I've just had to kind of admit that to myself. It's just had to be like, yeah, this is, you know, this is, I, I have a, a small, but very dedicated following of readers who like, I send them a newsletter every Saturday and I am so shocked at how many of them read it and how many of them like follow my career and how many of them are like, when I gave up the series, the two series that I've completely abandoned, when I abandoned them, they get pissed and I'm like, <laughs> I'm so shocked that you guys are pissed about this. So, you know, I, I, there, I know that I'm doing something good, but it's, uh, I think it's just a matter of perspective, like failure, success. It depends on what your goal is, mm. you know, yeah. which is part of my like, Hey, if you don't have the capital to advertise a ton, you don't have the freedom to like the like life freedom to like be going to conferences and networking with agents and doing the things that it's required to get an agent if you don't have the freedom to do that you can get mad about it or you can just change your goal mm. right like you know shooting for a big hairy audacious goal is great but you got to have demarcation points along the way that are actually accomplishable or you're just going to drive yourself insane like yeah. so yeah <laughs> yeah you're speaking my language yeah yeah <laughs> okay so we're gonna wrap this conversation up at this point <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure uh, many of our listeners would love to read the dialogue doctor book so where can they find it and how can they reach you if they have questions yeah so they can find the book anywhere uh that books are sold um anywhere online the books are sold i should say that your local bookstore probably doesn't have it uh so <laughs> it's called the dialogue doctor we'll see you now um and it's, uh, yeah, as far as finding me, um, you can come to the dialoguedoctor.com. There's actually a little, people are always surprised by this. There's a little pop-up that happens when you come there that's like, hey, if you want to talk to Jeff, just right here. That's on my phone, and I literally answer it within like 15 minutes. So if you if you want to talk to me, that's probably the best way. That's like a direct line to me. Um, yeah, but you can also, you know, find my email on the dialoguedoctor.com too if you if you go to the about page. But yeah, I'm that's the best place to find me and contact me. Is there. And finally, what's next for Jeff Elkins? Are you planning any follow-ups to the dialogue doctor? Do you have any other projects in the pipeline? Oh, I've got follow-ups. Um <laughs> yeah, now that I realize it helps people, I'm like, this is so exciting. Uh yeah, for the dialogue doctor, we'll see you now. There's another book coming out in October um that is 50 writing prompts and so what those writing prompts do is they assume that you are not writing dialogue centric and 
they te- they start off teaching you how to write a dialogue. Each writing prompt challenges you to do something a little bit more, take mm-hmm. one more step. And then after we get you dialogue centric, after I get you dialogue centric, I like using the word we, not because it's like a royal we, but because it takes less responsibility off of me. I'm like, surely there's more people responsible for this. <laughs> as I as I as I get you writing dialogue centric, I then start working you in character voice. Mm-hmm. And we like I work you through all of the different types of character voice. There's like 10 prompts on character voice. And then there's um then we start, then we like you and me we'll start working on uh character growth mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of scenes that you'll write for character growth and then uh there's like 10 scenes you write for cast and we like write prompts that specifically challenge you to write scenes with different types of cast members so the goal of that book and that book comes out in october it's already up on amazon uh it's called um the dialogue says take one uh a day for 50 days uh so that one uh comes out in october i'm hoping in the spring one of the big questions i get and one of the big problems that we're trying to solve right now in the community is what do we do with sex and fight scenes Mm -hmm. how how does dialogue change in a sex scene and a fight scene there's a lot of solutions we've come up with but i haven't proved them yet with masterworks so the way solutions work in the dialogue doctor is that we come up with a solution in coaching and then i go to i go read a ton of a ton of fiction i go back to the fiction that like sells all the time and is like historically considered great and we look at it and we're like okay i look at it and i'm like okay is this happening is this mm-hmm. real is this something so we have the solutions for sex and action scenes. I haven't proven them out yet. So I am actually going to be reading a massive amount of romance this fall <laughs> to like prove out these suspicions we have. And then I hope this spring to have a book out on um, what the dialogue doctor is doing, like what we I recommend for sex and romance scenes that I can actually like feel confident about. Like, yeah, this happens in masterworks. This is what they do. Mm-hmm. Um so that's uh that's what's coming in the dialogue doctor um we're having our first in-person retreat in october that's fun Mm uh so that's in baltimore in october 14th and 15th um we're uh i i at the time of recording this there's only like six tickets left because it's small it's like i think we're doing 20 people um Mm -hmm. But yeah, that'll be good. We're going to build an anthology together that's dialogue centric, and we're going to take. I'm going to Laura. I say, see, this time I say we. It's actually me and uh, another dialogue doctor editor, Laura Hum. We are doing it together. So we're going to take you through like writing a scene and editing a scene, and what we as dialogue doctor editors actually like look for and look at when we're looking at things. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody is going to write a short story. Um, they'll come. We'll come out of the weekend with short stories that we're all going to put in a dialogue doctor anthology so that's um that's very that's cool coming too. yeah so i'm excited about all those things they're they're yeah fun. yeah great stuff love yeah. it Thanks. all right thank you very very much jeff it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of writer roadmap I always love to chat to other authors about their writing journey and the roadblocks they've navigated around. I always learn a lot and I hope you have too. In the spirit of taking my own advice, I'm actually taking a hiatus from the podcast for a little while as life has become quite hectic and challenging. I will still be coaching, so if you want to sign up for that, please do so.
We have monthly group sessions where we chat through our current goals and obstacles and find solutions together. I also offer monthly and quarterly one-to-one sessions, all of which can be found at patreon.com forward slash hollyline. The podcast will be back soon to accompany you on your writing journey. Until next time, happy planning. You've been listening to the Writer Roadmap Podcast with Holly Line. Join me every week for microdoses of motivation and inspiration to help you navigate your writing journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on your favourite podcatcher. Happy planning!